And I'll say we're here on WSQF Blink Radio 94.5 for the Statues and Stories Hour. Today we're going to talk about Ulysses Grant, not in the Civil War sense, but in the presidential sense, and how he urged Congress in 1871 to pass a law to protect us against the atrocities of the KKK that were basically used 70 years later. So have at it, Adam Levinson of the Statues and Stories Hour. Thank you for that introduction. So let me uh, build on what you said. and That's a nice summary. So normally when people talk about Grant, they talk about Grant and fighting the Civil War. And, of course, Grant, Ulysses Grant, is the, 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 you know, towards the end of the war. And the second half of the war was the primary general, the general that Lincoln selected because he was able to win battles. So that's how most people hear about Grant. But tonight we're going to be talking about Grant when he became president. And this was after Lincoln was president, then you had Andrew Johnson, and then Grant was elected as the Republican. And uh, what's the point? The point is that uh, he faced down during the Reconstruction period, uh, and he exerted presidential leadership of a kind which we're going to be talking about tonight. And and, uh, the story tonight is about an act that was passed in 1871, and there were several names for this act. And often there are multiple names because it accomplishes several different purposes. So it's referred to as the KKK Act of 1871, because it's it's focused on fighting the Ku Klux Klan, which evolved and arose after the Civil War. It's also referred to as the Third Enforcement Act or the Civil Rights Act of 1871. So they're all different names for this act, and and we'll probably just talk to to it or refer to it as the Act of 1871. And uh, let's see, the, the reason why this is important is because when people talk about civil rights today, and when you sue to enforce civil rights, and I don't care if you're suing from the left or the right, we can give examples later on about civil rights cases, but when you bring civil rights cases in federal court, and you can actually do it in state court also, through uh, their different kinds of jurisdiction, but you're usually suing under 1983. And uh, when people hear 1983 cases in the context of police brutality or First Amendment, 1983, which is the section of 42 United States Code, relates back to this act passed in 1871 after the Civil War to fight the Ku Klux Klan. And we'll get into more detail on why we chose to talk about this tonight. But I agree with you, Manny. A good way of teeing up the story is to talk about President Grant. And, you know, Grant was very popular after the war because he won the war. All right. And, uh, you know, there are some detractors and not every every president's friend is uh, perfect. But I want to start off with a lighter comment about Grant. So when you look him up, his name when he was born was not actually um, Ulysses Grant. His name was Hiram Ulysses Grant. So the question is, why was he called, uh, you know, Ulysses Grant or U.S. Grant? And, And the quick answer is when he applied to West Point. And the way West Point works is you have to get appointed by a senator or a member of Congress to go to West Point. Uh, the application uh, gave his wrong name. It referred to him as U.S. Grant because it was abbreviating the U for Ulysses. And when West, when West Point figured out that his name or on his application was U.S. Grant, U period, S period Grant, that obviously stuck because just imagine in the military, U.S. Grant, Uncle Sam, U.S. So they referred to him as a Sam or, or Ulysses. Uh, so U.S. Grant. How about Sam, reminds, I, Sam I am Grant? <laughs> there you go. They referred to him. That was his nickname, Sam. Uh, but the U.S., because of the application, referred to him as U. S. Grant, even though his name was Hiram. And that stuck. Right. So uh, what, what's the other point? My, my father, who I probably think is listening tonight, uh, tells a story about how the Army works. 
and uh, having been in the army during the Vietnam uh, time period. But uh, what, what's the point? The point is that there's a movie, uh, not to get too far off of our subject, maybe we'll come back to that to give some, some, uh, some military analogies, but uh, this is an example of a president who is a military leader and uh, convinces Congress to pass a law, which now is a very important law, and uh, it's the bedrock of the enforcement of civil rights under Section 1983. So that's what we're going to be talking about, and as, as you introduced it, the show tonight is the Statutes and Stories Hour, and the Statutes and Stories, there are several ways you can jump into our materials, everybody. You can listen to us live, which you might be doing now. 94.5 FM. And the other way you can listen to us is the podcast. Live stream, WSQFradio.com, today and then tomorrow as a recording. That's right. So there's the podcast on, on the, the radio station, WSQF. And then for people who really want to get into the details and read the materials, this post today is, or this discussion tonight is based upon an article that I just posted over the weekend about the KKK or the Ku Klux Klan Act or the Civil Rights Act of 1871 on the website, statutesandstories.com. So that's what I do in my free time as we blog about American history. And usually I like to focus on the period of the Revolutionary War and Washington and Hamilton and Jefferson and Madison, the formative years of American history. But today we're going to be talking about the post-Civil War period, which is also known as Reconstruction, and the year is 1871. So that gives us our background, and people are welcome to follow along as I'm going to be uh, on the website, stationsandstories.com, going through. And I break it down into three different parts. So the first part I talk about is the, the legislative history or the background behind why they passed this law. And this story has to do with the KKK. The KKK was running rampant in, in the South, and we'll give lots of examples. And I'll quote from a lot of primary sources about the, what convinced Grant to realize that he should urgently seek Congress, Congress's help to pass a law so he could fight the KKK, which was targeting you know, former slaves, members of the Republican Party, these, these newly freed slaves were trying to vote as Republicans, and they were being prevented from voting, in some cases slaughtered and, and uh, all, and, all and kinds pull, of atrocities. And, be, and being pulled by behind horse and chariot, which continued for 70 years behind pickup trucks. So Grant was successful through this law and other steps he took, and some of this was controversial when we get into the details, but he was very successful in really stopping the KKK in the 1870s. Now, it reemerged in the 1950 time frame, so the KKK came back to life, but the Grant was successful, and I think that's one of the major points, is when you have a president who is a former general and knows what needs to be done, he succeeded. And this story also involves the Justice Department, because the Justice Department was created under the Grant administration because they were so busy fighting the KKK, making arrests. And we'll give specifics and we'll give details uh, on what occurred once the law was passed and what led into the law. So, so the first part of our discussion tonight is the background, or what the lawyers refer to as the legislative history of the Civil Rights Act of 1871. The second part of our discussion will be looking at the actual provisions, which some people might find a little boring, but it's important to understand the actual well, let's language. Well, let's do that now then. Do the, do the, the boring part first. Well, you know, there's less. It's less boring if you have some of the background about the law. Is that it? It, it makes it makes sense to do it. Okay, right, granted. We can, we can, go ahead. 
we, we can jump around a little bit. And then the third part, we'll be talking about the, the law as it applies today. And part of this will also involve cases, because when lawyers talk about law, they're not just talking about statutes written by Congress or state legislatures. Lawyers are also talking about case law. So we'll talk about some of the cases. And what's interesting is that the, the act, even though the language itself hasn't dramatically changed over the years, the court interpretation has changed. And that's an interesting conversation we'll have. So we're going to begin first by going into the details about the passage of the law and what motivated Grant to, to drive this thing through Congress. So again, the, and let me tell you the official name of the law. If you look it up on statutesandstories.com, the official name of the act, and at the very beginning of a law, they give you the official name, not the name that it's referred to colloquially, but the official name of the law is, and it's a mouthful, it's an act to enforce the provisions of the 14th Amendment to the Constitution of the United States and for other purposes. So that's the name of the law, to enforce the 14th Amendment. And when I mention the 14th Amendment, we should probably back up and say, what amendments are we talking about? What's the 14th Amendment say? And the quick answer is that after the Civil War, the 13th Amendment was passed, which outlawed slavery. Gone. 13th Amendment outlawed slavery. 14th Amendment, because the Congress realized that it wasn't enough to just outlaw slavery because these black codes were passed, these were horrific laws in southern states, which tried basically to reimpose slavery, even though it wasn't called slavery. So Congress passed the 14th Amendment, which has multiple provisions in it. But the 14th Amendment, among other things, is famous for equal protection and due process. So applying those provisions, which are in the Fifth Amendment of the Constitution applies to that's from the Bill of Rights applies to the federal government equal protection in the federal government. Well, wait a minute, wait, I got to slow you down here for a second. Um, can you can you read us the Fourteenth Amendment, or do you do not have it in front of you so that people, a lot of people don't know what the Fourteenth uh, respects because it has something to do with the Thirteenth, but at the same time it's not worded at all alike, and yet they're supposed to do the same and more. Do you have the 14th Amendment you can yeah, read? So, so the 13th Amendment is basically one sentence saying that you know, slavery is, is abolished, and uh, that's the 13th Amendment. 14th Amendment has multiple sections, and it's a mouthful. It's uh, five sections. I'm not going to read all of the 14th Amendment, but the most famous sections of the, the 14th Amendment, and remember the Dred Scott case from the 19, 1957, I think it was, where the Supreme Court, one of the worst cases in the history of the Supreme Court, uh, basically said that slaves could not be citizens. So the, the first section of the uh, 14th Amendment really unwinds and reverses the Dred Scott decision by saying, and I'll read you from Section 1 of the 14th Amendment, all persons born or naturalized in the United States and subject to the jurisdiction thereof are citizens of the United States, and no state may make or enforce any law abridging the privilege and immunities of citizens of the United States. So that's, our, that's Section 1 of the 14th Amendment. And then you get into more details, which are more famous sections, dealing with equal protection. And I mentioned that you have equal protection in, against the federal government in, in the Fifth Amendment, right, and in the other provisions of the Constitution. But it took the Civil War to start applying equal protection and due process to the states. Because the Bill of Rights originally didn't apply to the states. So the 14th Amendment applies equal protection. You can't violate someone's equal protection. What does equal protection mean? You have to treat people fairly, equal protection of the law. So that's also in the 14th Amendment. And then the shortest section of the 14th Amendment, which really is what's motivating the conversation today, is Section 5 of the 14th Amendment, since many you asked, I'm telling you. But Section 5 says that Congress shall have the power to enforce by appropriate legislation, the provisions of this article. So what that means is that when Congress passed the, you know, Congress had passed it but then had to be ratified, but when Congress wrote the, the 14th Amendment, it gave itself the authority in Section 5 to enforce through legislation 
you know, anti-discrimination. This is equal protection and due process. So that, that Congress be... needs to get something done. And, uh, you know, one of its muscular sources of authority, when, when people look at congressional powers, you've got congressional powers of suspending and congressional power to, uh, to regulate commerce. But also because of the 14th Amendment, you have the enforcement provisions in Section 5 to enforce equal protection and due process. That's a little bit of a um, you know detour we took, but I think you're right. It's important to understand what does the 14th Amendment say. Yeah, because it has so many sections. I mean, hell, Section 3 talks about the president and the vice president and the holding of office. I, I don't really understand uh, the complexity of the 14th Amendment, why it was all bunched together. It seemed like there's three or four amendments there. <laughs> so the part of the 14th Amendment that you're looking at, Section 3, was talking about you shouldn't be able to run for office if you were if you had taken an oath in support of the Confederacy. So Section Three of the Fourteenth Amendment really doesn't apply today, although some people might try to make that argument. But well, that, that, uh, time out, of... time out. There's something that, that I wanted to have clarity on. I, I'm assuming the audience would too. Was it true that the North, basically the United States, since they were the victors of this war, the Civil War? Did we or did we not strip the southern states of their senators in order to pass this amendment? Right. In other so words, that, that, appointed our own, uh, the North, uh, basically the country appointed new senators in the Confederate states so that they would pass the 14th Amendment. Yes or no? So it's a, it's a complex discussion. We could do an entire hour on that. But, but the, 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 the Confederate states, weren't members of Congress until they agreed effectively to ratify. They didn't want to ratify the 14th Amendment. Correct. The southern states, there were conditions imposed upon them to be readmitted back into the Union. And then those conditions were basically to comply with the 14th Amendment, to allow former slaves to vote. To uh, So there were conditions. <laughs> so I think that's your point on allowing... Yeah, there were conditions, but I have a feeling that if we look at it deeper... Uh, we literally had to put in senators to agree to those terms because I think the existing senators uh, balked at passing the 14th Amendment. I think we had to excuse them from the Senate since they had lost this war anyway. We had rights to expel them because they were uh, they were insurrectionists. They so, were insurrectionists. Yeah, so... so, so uh, let's do another show about the, the history of the 14th Amendment. I'm only mentioning it in passing tonight because... We're talking about the, the Civil Rights Act of 1871, otherwise known as the KKK Act of 1871, and the title of the act. We haven't even gotten past the title, but the title of the act is to enforce the 14th Amendment. So I agree. We'll do another show uh, talking about the 14th Amendment another night. Okay. Fair enough. Okay. So, so here the point is, and I'm reading from the first paragraph on Statutes and Stories where we talk about this law, that it had a checkered history. So I say despite the law's checkered history where it's sort of been a pendulum swinging in different directions – Several provisions of this 1871 law have become vital tools for enforcing civil rights in modern times. So it's a very important law, even though it dates back to 1871. And we're going to talk tonight about how it was used by President Grant to suppress, really, he, he went right after the KKK during the Reconstruction period, uh, but then it fell into disuse in the 1880s because of a Supreme Court case that we'll talk about if we have time. When you say he went was... right at him, did he did he actually go and arrest people, shoot them, kill them, uh, beat them up, uh, uh, put them up, uh, hand them over to his new, newly formed DOJ? What do you mean when he actually went all, at All what? of the above. So, And we're, we're going to go through this step by step, but basically he declared habeas corpus. He set aside habeas corpus, which is uh, the right to go before a judge, so warrantless arrest. 
Uh, he was he sent in the military. I think it was the seventh, and I'll, I'll give the specific name of the divisions he sent in. He sent in attorneys and prosecutors. They did mass arrests and, and trials. And uh, you know, when you declare martial law, don't mess with Grant. Right? Now he, he had he had these infamous marshals already, right? He used the U.S. marshals. He used okay, so uh, the, the military. Yeah, so it's he, important he, that the he, audience know that they, that he had a U.S. Marshals Department because in previous programs uh, with uh, cousins of yours, he we had program just about these marshals. So it's exciting to know that this is part of the history as well. That's right. So we will go into and then here the, the larger story is Grant used his presidential power to address a, a societal ill or a real problem, which was the KKK. All right, so we're going to get into what the law says. But he didn't do that until the law was passed. He wanted to make sure he had the legal authority to go after the KKK. Now, right, am so, I uh, assuming that these amendments passed, you know, not like the last amendment that took, you know, 200 years. Are you saying that the United States was, like, fresh and ready to go to pass these amendments fairly quickly? Because obviously it happened within his two terms. So the, the 14th Amendment, I think, was adopted in 1868 time frame. Don't quote me. I'd have to look it up. But, um, you know, he, he becomes president at around that time. So I, I think it had been adopted by Congress, but it had to get ratified. Yeah, sure. That's what I'm asking. What Was it? I mean, I know we were a tiny amount of states back then, but still, amendments are amendments. And after a war, you would think it would take some time to get these amendments passed. But apparently th these things were marshaled in pretty quickly. Yeah, they were adopted within a couple of years. These amendments were adopted. So the 13th outlawed slavery. 14th we talked about in some detail, equal protection due process. Uh, the ability to enforce these these rights, that's the 14th. And then the 15th Amendment uh, guarantees the right to vote. It says the right to vote can't be abridged uh, because of condition of, of a former servitude. Uh, so that was the 15th Amendment, which by the first time uses the expression, and I have to double-check exactly, uh, but male or man, uh, because the 15th Amendment only allowed former male slaves. And for all the ladies out there, they're sitting on the sidelines still with no right to vote. Well, I don't know that I agree with that, but the, the women's rights movement uh, was not happy with the 15th Amendment. And we talked about that in other nights, because the 15th Amendment only applied to former male slaves, not former female slaves. And it took a while before, you know, th that same right to vote was given to women in 1917-1919 time frame. That right, seems so. to be a long time later. So I am right once again here on Blink Radio. All right, yeah. so we're, we're giving more background, and we're going to start talking about Grant in more detail. Yeah, yeah, stop uh, the stop with the suspense, Adam. Would you like get into the meat of the matter here or what? Okay, so we're gonna dive right in. So after the fourteenth amendment was adopted, after the Civil War is over, the southern states basically wanted to do what they wanted to do at, at the local level and they passed these black codes, which were efforts to subjugate former slaves. So former slaves, if they didn't have a job, couldn't travel. And former slaves, uh, you know, basically they're reimposing, uh, you know, many of the same conditions that existed during slavery. And uh, Grant gets a letter, and I read from part of the letter. The, the letter came from Robert K. Scott, who was the governor of South Carolina. And Governor Scott was a Republican governor. He's writing to his Republican president. And let me quote, I have it on statutes and stories. Uh, and this gives you an idea of the brutality of what was going on in the South, because the, the Democrats in the South, and today the Democratic Party is very different than the Democratic Party in the 1870s. Who says? The, the, the Democrats in the 1870s were the rebels who fought the Civil War. On they the still the are. Okay, well, that, that's a, another conversation. Yeah, I know. I'm just trying to drag you into it. Okay. 
Right. So here's an example of Governor Robert Scott writing to Grant, and he says the following. He's asking for federal assistance, and here's the quote. He says, colored men and women have been dragged from their homes. This is a quote, at the dead of night, at the dead hour of night, and most cruelly and brutally scourged for the sole reason that they dare to exercise their own opinions upon political subjects. So the governor of South Carolina is saying, people who voted for me, they're being rounded up and they're being beaten and killed in the dead of night. And, of course, that's what the KKK would do. The KKK was former Confederate officers, right? So President Grant responded, and I give a link so people wanted to read more of these letters. President Grant responded by writing to the House Speaker, the Speaker of the House, James Blaine, on March 9th, 1871, and here's the quote from from Grant. He says, quote, there is a deplorable state of affairs existing in some portions of the South demanding the immediate attention of Congress. So Grant is writing to the Speaker of the House. This demands immediate attention of Congress, he says. So Grant asked Congress to devote its next session, quote, to the single subject of providing means for the protection of life and property in the areas of the South being brutalized by the Klan. So he says to Congress, I need you to get together. I need you to meet. This is going to be your main focus to pass this law that I need because I'm going to you know, impose and reimpose law and order in the South. The KKK can't get away doing this you know, to our newly free slaves. These are citizens and they're voters. And by the way, they vote Republican and I'm a Republican president. Right? So two weeks later, on March 23rd, 1871, Grant formally, so he, he wrote to Blaine, the Speaker of the House, but then he formally requested legislative action in a special message that he sends to Congress. And it's so important that I quote an entire paragraph of this special message, and I give links so people can read it. So I'm going to read some of this to you to give some idea of you know, what was going on in the South. He says as follows. A condition of affairs now exists in some of the states of the Union, renewing life and property. In, I'm sorry, maybe I did it wrong. It says renewing life and property insecure and carrying of the mails and the collection of revenues dangerous. The proof of that such a condition of affairs exists in some localities is now before the Senate. And the Senate had started doing investigations on its own. That the power of the executive of the United States, meaning the president, acting within the limits of existing laws is sufficient to present emergencies is not clear. So he's saying, I'm not sure if I have enough authority under current laws to to act. Therefore, I urgently recommend such legislation as the judgment of Congress shall effectively secure the life, liberty, and property and enforcement of the law. So he's saying to Congress, this is what I need you to do. You need to pass a law so I can go after the KKK. So eventually the law was adopted. It took a couple weeks. So after the 1871 Act was adopted to enforce the 14th Amendment, then he issues a special proclamation on May 3rd, 1871. And he doesn't just send in the army. He warns the KKK. And he realizes he can't send the army into the entire South. There are too many states. So you want to pick an example and then go after your example, right? That's good leadership. So in this special proclamation, he lays down the gauntlet, May 3rd, 1871, and he says, uh, you know, violence will not be tolerated. I've now got the authority of Congress, and, uh, you know, you must cease and desist is basically what he's saying. So I'm going to quote you, and it's all on statutesandstories.com. He says, the act of Congress entitled, and I'm not going to give the name of the act, which we already gave before, but, you know, the, the 1871 Act, which was approved April 20th, A.D. 1871, being a law of extraordinary public importance. This is grand, extraordinary public importance. I consider it my duty to issue this proclamation, calling the attention of the people of the United States thereto, enjoining upon all good citizens, and especially upon all public officers, to be zealous in the enforcement thereof, and warning all persons to abstain from committing any of the acts thereby prohibited. So he's saying, listen, do it yourself. Stop this and uh, let the officials in the South enforce the law. Uh, Otherwise, I've got the big stick. I've got the hammer. Don't make me use it. (laughs) 
Basically. He goes on and says the following. He forcefully described that the law, quote, and this is, you know, this is presidential leadership. The law, quote, will be enforced everywhere to the extent of the powers vested in the executive. So he's saying, I'm going to do what I need to do if you guys can't figure it out on your own. And then he tried to peacefully appeal to Southerners to voluntarily comply. But then he goes on to say in this proclamation that inasmuch as the necessity, therefore, is well known to have been caused, and he describes what was going on, to be caused chiefly by persistent violations of the rights of citizens of the United States, by combinations of lawless and disaffected persons in certain localities, of the theater of the insurrection. Of course, the theater of the insurrection was the, you know, the South. I do particularly exhort the people of those parts of the country to suppress all such combinations by their own voluntary efforts. And I'm not going to quote it all. And he's saying that if you don't do it, then I'm going to have to do it. And here's, I think, my favorite part. He says, fully sensible of my responsibilities and these extraordinary powers given to him, granted to him by Congress, President Grant warns the following. So this is quite a sentence, and I've been reading a lot of Grant, but this is a great sentence. He warns, quote, I will not hesitate to exhaust the powers thus vested in the executive, which is the president. I will not hesitate to exhaust the powers vested in me, quote, whenever and wherever it shall be necessary to do so for the purpose of securing to all citizens of the United States the peaceful enjoyment of the rights guaranteed to them by the Constitution and the laws. So he, he means business, and he's letting people know. So I then have a copy of a newspaper article because, you know, back then, whenever the president would do a proclamation, this is before TV, you know, people would read the papers and the, the entire speech, his entire proclamation is, is in the, you know, can read the actual newspaper from 1871. And now I quote one of my favorite historians, Ron Chernow, and I, I never read the book. I've only read excerpts from it. But, of course, Chernow wrote famously the Hamilton biography, and he wrote a biography. And you of are a fan of Chernow. <laughs> That's right. I'm a Chernow. I think the listeners of this show are all fans of Chernow. Listeners of are you know, followers of the musical. People who've seen the musical, the Hamilton musical, are fans of Chernow because the musical was based upon Chernow's biography of of Hamilton. He also did a biography of Washington, both of which I read, but I have not read in its entirety the Grant uh, biography. But it was 2017 that Chernow wrote the Grant biography. But now I'm going to quote from the Grant biography. So this is how Chernow, who's very good at sort of teasing together and and uh, tying together. You know, the strands of history, especially when he writes biographies. This is what he says about Grant. He says, Klan violence was unquestionably the worst outbreak of domestic terrorism in American history, and Grant dealt with it aggressively, using all the instruments at his disposal. And Turnout continues, and pursuing the Klan, he showed the advantage of his persistence, simplicity, and innate stubbornness. So when you have a stubborn <clears throat> general coming after you, uh, that's not such a good thing if you're on the bad side of the law. Plus, plus, uh, plenty of battle-hardened experience. He's an experience, and that's another point. You know, and let's let's talk about Eisenhower also. You know, when you have a president who's who's led the military and knows how force can be used, these are also the kind of people that don't want to just use force unnecessarily. And that gets to how Grant gives the warning, right? He says, I don't want to have to do this, but if you make me do it, right? So I've got some pictures in here so people can see, uh, you know, of... Uh, you know, back then, they, they, they were beginning to get newspaper you know, pictures, you know, photographs that you could put in a newspaper. But most of the time, the illustrations were pictures, etchings. So uh, I've got some of these pictures from newspapers from that time period of the KKK. So among other things, and you can I encourage people to go to the website, look at some of the pictures. So among other things, the 1871 Act authorized Grant. So what did the law do, right? So it authorized him to use the military to stop, quote, insurrection, 
domestic violence, unlawful combinations or conspiracies against civil rights if a state's government fails to act. And that's what Grant's doing. He's giving the states the ability to do this on their own. And when they don't, then he comes in, like a, as we said, like a banshee. So consistent with Lincoln's suspension of habeas corpus during the Civil War, Lincoln suspended habeas corpus. So Grant is, uh, is allowed also to do so. And th- this law only allows him to do it for a year. So it's not an indefinite suspension of habeas corpus, but for a year he's able to do it, and he does in certain areas. So, and this is the point I made earlier, that he knows the limitations of military power. He decided to make an example of what's referred to as the Piedmont region of South Carolina. There were a lot of problems in this area, uh, South Carolina, we could joke about South Carolina, uh, but some of the worst Klan violence had taken place in these nine counties. And then here's an example in York County in South Carolina, the Attorney General, Amos Ackerman, who's also a a hero, uh, goes in, you know, I'm reminded of did you see the movie about prohibition with Kevin Costner, where he sort of takes on the um, Al Capone? And, Absolutely. Right. So you know, think of that story with. Um, I think Andy you know, Garcia's like, in that too. Yeah, I think you're right. Garcia is one of his uh, one of his helpers. Yes. So here you've got Attorney General Amos Ackerman and Army Major General Lewis Merrill go into South Carolina. They're investigating what's going on, and they found evidence just in one county of 11 murders and more than 600 whippings and related assaults. So based upon this investigation, Ackerman Wright reports back to Grant, and this is the quote from Ackerman. Ackerman describes how, quote, regions of rural South Carolina were under the domination of, and this is amazing language, under the domination of systematic and organized depravity. (laughs) So that's how bad it was with the KKK. Systematic and organized depravity. Major Merrill claimed that the situation was, quote, and this is other language, which is quite interesting, a carnival of crime not paralleled in the history of any civilized community. So that's the report Grant is getting out of South Carolina, a carnival of crime, not to make light of it, it's, it's you know, serious business, not paralleled in the history of any civilized community. When he gets that report and he learns that the, the juries are refusing, the grand juries are refusing to convict or to indict, and that the, the South Carolina can't take a business on its own, and the South Carolina governor is asking for help, that's when Grant comes in. So when the, the Klan fails to comply with Grant's warning, and as I said, local grand juries are refusing to take action. Grant suspends habeas corpus, declares martial law in these nine counties in South Carolina, and he comes in with a vengeance. He sends the 7th U.S. Cavalry, and many you're right, the U.S. Marshals, to round up suspected Klan members for trial. The newly created Justice Department, which was supervised by Ackerman, oversaw the persecution or prosecution, I should say, of the, of the KKK. So let's now go into more detail about the law. So he signed... Uh, you know, it was 1870, so the year before is when Congress created the Justice Department, before you had the Attorney General dating back to Washington, but there wasn't a formal Department of Justice. So I give a link if anyone wants to read the act creating the Department of Justice from 1870, and Grant ordered that the Justice Department's initial mandate, and a lot of people don't realize this, I didn't know it myself, the initial mandate of the Justice Department was to counter those groups who were using intimidation and violence in the South to coerce voters and to suppress the former slaves, African Americans. So that was the initial job of the Justice Department that was assigned to it by Grant. So in his first year in office, I give some of the numbers, over 1,000 members of the KKK were indicted, over 550 of them were convicted, so not all of them that were rounded up were convicted. And by late 1871, more than 3,000 indictments were issued against the KKK, 
which was largely defeated by Grant and Attorney General Ackerman until, as we said earlier, that the KKK reemerged in the early 1900s, particularly 1915. And I give some pictures from 1871 of uh, some of these, and they're not photographs, but they're great engravings or etches. Uh, of, uh, and it's interesting, they're not wearing, they're wearing the sheets on their head, but they're not pointy hats. Uh, these are like pillowcases. If you ask me, they look like fools and, and idiots. But uh, you know, that's, that's an example of how Grant used this law to get, to come, come in hard after the KKK successfully to, <coughs> to suppress them in the 1871-1872 time frame. Okay. So what is part two of our discussion tonight? So part two is we're going to look at the actual provisions of the law. So it's six sections. So section one of the act is the one that really wasn't too controversial. Section one was saying that, and this is the language that people may, may be familiar with, that under color of law. So if any person, quote, under color of any law, deprives another of the rights. Can you hear me? Yes, I can. Okay, so I'm not going to read it all because it's a mouthful, but Section 1 of the 1871 Act says that if anyone under color of law, that's in quotes, under color of law, we'll talk about that later, deprives another person of rights, privileges, or immunities or protections secured by the Constitution, then they would be liable in federal court for damages. So it's creating a mechanism for people to enforce their federal rights. If a state government or a mayor or you know, a judge or a police officer right, is depriving you using the color of law, using their position as a law enforcement or official in government, if they're using the government to suppress you, deny you your rights, then you have the ability to sue to enforce those rights under Section 1 of the Act. And today we refer to this as Section 1983. So let me talk a little bit about Section 1983. So Section 1983, and back then it was Section 1 of the Act. Today it's 42 U.S.C. 1983. And when I say U.S.C., that's U.S. Code. So that's the lawyer talking when we say U.S.C. So it's 42 U.S.C. 1983, and it's not creating a separate right. It doesn't create a separate cause of action. It's allowing you to sue based upon rights you already have. So it's not a separate new right. It's a mechanism to enforce rights that you have under the 14th Amendment, under equal protection, under, and it can be used for all kinds of purposes, right? It's used a lot today by inmates in jail if they're being, you know, uh, abused in prison, right? If, if uh, they're not being given food or uh, if they're being sexually assaulted in prison, they can bring a 1983 cause of action. If you're the victim of police brutality, you bring a 1983 action, right? If you're, uh, you know, denied your rights of uh, freedom of speech, you bring a 1983 action. So this all relates to Section 1 of the 1871 Act. Let me give you more background. So Section 1 allowed former slaves and really any other plaintiffs to sue state and local officials for violating federal law. And importantly, Section 1 enabled private citizens to use federal courts to enforce their rights. And this is a big change. You can now sue in federal court to enforce your rights. And by the way, in addition to damages, you could also get injunctive relief. What is injunctive relief? That's where the court is saying, I'm going to prevent this from happening again. If the court enters an injunction, the, the injunction orders the defendant to refrain. There are different kinds of injunctions, but injunction preventing action means that you better not do what you just did because the, the court has, has ordered you not to do X, Y, and Z. That's injunctive relief. And sometimes judges force you to do something. That's positive injunctive relief as opposed to negative injunctive relief. All right, so Section 2. So we talked about Section 1, which is 1983. People know from uh, police dramas, right? So Section 2 establishes criminal sanctions. And this part was very controversial. Established criminal sanctions and, crim and civil liability for conspiracies. So if, what is a conspiracy? A conspiracy is two people teaming up 
to do something that's not allowed, right? So if you just violate the law by yourself, that's a crime for violating the law. But if you team up with somebody else, you conspire, that's a separate offense. So then the law of conspiracy is, is a whole other animal. But, um, you know, the, the law has recognized that conspiracies are particularly dangerous because you have people working together to break the law. So Section 2 of this law from 1871 establishes that you can sue for civil damages, and also it's a criminal violation if you conspire two or more people to act against the government. And uh, today it's, it's codified in Section 1985 of the United States Code, 42 U.S. Code. So 1983 is suits that you can bring right, to enforce and vindicate your rights. Section 1985 focuses on liability for conspiracies. And if we have time later, maybe we'll do it another night, a lawsuit was brought against President Trump, against Rudy Giuliani, against the Oath Keepers, against a bunch of other groups for conspiracies, and that they're traveling under Section 1985, which is Section 2 of the Act, and maybe we'll talk about that later. So let me quote a little bit from Section 1985 which, again, is Section 2 of the Act, provides for liability for those who conspire to, quote, oppose by force, intimidation, or threat to prevent, hinder, or delay the execution of any law of the United States. So that's part of what's in Section 1985. And I'm going to point out that, let's see, there's a lot more to it, and some of these provisions are old language and they're hard to read through. <clears throat> but I encourage people, if they have nothing better to do and you want to read Section 1985, because you're going to be reading more about this in the, uh, in the you know, next year or two as some of these cases move through the courts. But I won't belabor the point. And what about Section 3? Section 3 authorized the president, we touched on this earlier, uh, to use the uh, – so what do they say here? To, to arrest and, and use the armed forces to put down rebellions – and there are some typos on this post because I just recently did it over the weekend. Section 4 permitted the president to suspend habeas corpus, as we talked about, for a period not exceeding a year. So that's Section 4, which doesn't apply anymore. Section 5 provides, this is interesting, that jurors had to swear that they had not given allegiance to a group such as the KKK. And that was one of the problems. If your jurors were members of the KKK, they're not going to convict. So they had thought this through, and Section 5 of the Act makes sure that jurors could not be members of the KKK on the juries, right? So you had to swear that you were not a member of the KKK or similar organizations. And if we have time later, we'll give some of the names, because they weren't just called the KKK. There were other names in different parts of the country. In Louisiana, they had a different name than they had in, in Mississippi, for example. Uh, but they were all affiliated you know, with the objectives of the KKK. So if you were a member of these insurrectionist organizations, you could not be on a jury. Section 6, which is the last section, provided that individuals, with, this is interesting, with knowledge of a conspiracy who failed to take reasonable action to prevent wrongful acts could also be held liable for death resulting from the failure to act. So if you knew that uh, you know, your brother or you know, your coworker that night was going to go riding with a hood to uh, you know, wreak havoc and uh, you know, string somebody up, which unfortunately was all too common in the South, and you did nothing, didn't report it, and sat by and let it happen, you could be held responsible also. So this is a very forceful act, the 1871 Act. And I've got a picture now from a newspaper, which was a very important newspaper at the time. Frank Leslie's Illustrated Newspaper was the name. So today, people know the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal and, and different other newspapers. But back then, if you wanted pictures, and a lot of people weren't good readers, so Frank Leslie's Illustrated Newspaper are some of the best pictures, meaning engravings from this time period. And a lot of them are at the Library of Congress. So there's a, a picture of Grant sitting at a table signing the 1871 Act, the KKK Act, He's sitting with one of his generals and also with the Secretary of the Navy, and they're in the room, which is 
where the president was allowed to go and can still go today in Congress, uh, where sometimes the president back then, I guess, used to meet more often with Congress. So that's it's called the president's room at the Capitol. So that picture or that engraving is a, a grant at a table in the president's room at the Capitol. So I think it's an interesting picture if people want to look at it. So we, we've now made it to part three of the um, of, of the post, and I'm looking to see how we're doing on time. And we got about 20 minutes. All right, so we're going to talk about the modern codification. And this is where we're going to get into detail of cases. So we talked about how this law was passed in 1871, how Grant used it to really strike serious blows against the against the Klan. And the um, problem was that, that it, it was uh, ill effect. So it worked, right? When the law was being Oh, it worked. It worked from the standpoint of the nastiest ones uh, stopped behaving the way they did, stopped taking people out to hang. So, so the KKK was basically shut down in the South in the late 1870s, and then Reconstruction ends, and the, the, the KKK reemerges in the 1900s. So the law worked as intended. But then the Supreme Court comes around, and this is 1873. There were a series of cases called the Slaughterhouse Cases, where the Supreme Court begins to chip away at the 14th Amendment and has a narrow, and not to get into the details, but it's a very narrow interpretation of the Privileges and Immunities Clause of the 14th Amendment. So the Supreme Court is narrowing the rights that you have under the 14th Amendment. And then the worst case of this time period was U.S. versus Harris in 1882, where the Supreme Court holds, and we talked about it, the Section 2, which is the criminal conspiracies, the court held that that was not constitutional, that the provisions which made it a crime to engage in conspiracies under the 1871 Act was unconstitutional, and the court held that uh, because it's private conduct, it's not governmental conduct. It's not conduct under color of state law. Uh, so therefore, you can't you, you can't use these uh, you know these protections, these these uh, uh, provisions that we're talking about to criminalize private conduct. So that's what the U.S. versus Harris case holds in 1882. You could still go after civilly these conspiracies, but not criminally. That was going to be for state law. You know, state law and municipal law would handle local run-of-the-mill crimes. You couldn't do it under federal law. So that's U.S. versus Harris. And after the Harris case, 1882, the law basically sits idle for almost 100 years. And we're going to talk about how it comes back to life and, and how that's important. But the court why, 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 do you say, why do you say 100? Because that would put it at 1970-something. Wasn't it used in the 60s? Right, so you're you're being more precise, Manny. I'm rounding. Come so on, eight, I mean, you know, ten ten years, eighty years. So 1882 is the okay. Harris case, right? But it, it comes back in the 1960s, and it's a series of cases started in the 1960s, which breathed new life into the into the. And really, it was never used for that period from the 1880s until 1960s. It wasn't really used until Eisenhower picks it up. Another Republican president, Eisenhower, who was a general picks up some of this language, and let me give you the Eisenhower example. So this is 1957. The governor of Arkansas, a guy named Orville Quabbis, and, you know, when you see that name, you got to – I don't want to make fun of people in the South, but O-R-V-A-L, Orville Quabbis, is the governor of Arkansas, and uh, this is after the Brown versus to- That's totally hillbilly. I'll say it as the host. Okay. So the – I think the Brown versus Board of Education case is saying you can't de- you can't segregate schools anymore. Separate is not equal. So you've got Eisenhower who's realizing that you know we have to start desegregating the, the, the schools. And the governor of Alabama is not Alabama. That's later. The governor of Arkansas is refusing, and he calls in the Arkansas National Guard to block school desegregation. 
So what does Eisenhower do? He also gives a warning. And then when, our, when Governor Abel Fawbis doesn't want to listen at Central High School, and this is, again, in Arkansas, Little Rock, Arkansas, Eisenhower uses a provision in the 1871 Act to send federal troops into Little Rock. So it starts uh, to get dusted off in 1857 by, by Eisenhower, and then the courts latch onto it in 1961. So we're going to talk about a case, Monroe versus Pap. And I give a link if anyone wants to read it, Monroe versus PAPE, 1961. So what's the issue that comes up in 1961? And the answer is, and I don't give the specifics, but an a, a African-American family in Chicago, without a warrant, about 13 police officers go into their house, uh, make them stand naked, the husband, the father and the, the, the mother, I'm not sure if they were also children, uh, but they're forced to stand naked in the middle of the house for several hours without a warrant. He's arrested. He's not charged. And he brings a lawsuit saying, this violates my rights when you come barging into my house. By the way, Fifth Amendment and Fourth Amendment, you know, privacy and uh, the right to be secure in my home. So he brings the cause of action and uh, the court agrees. 1961, the court holds that Congress meant, this is a quote from the Pope in the Pape case, Monroe versus Pape, the court holds that Congress, quote, meant to give a remedy to parties deprived of constitutional rights, privileges, and immunities by an official's abuse of his position under Section 1983. These police officers were acting under color of law. They were local officials. They're knowingly violating rights. And the court begins to realize that we're going to allow 1983 to be used to allow people to vindicate their rights. So we're now going to get into some of the different provisions today, which is in Section 1981. Let's start with 1981. So Section 1981 is a generic promise of civil rights, and this was adopted, and I, I mentioned there were several civil rights laws that were passed after the, after, the civil, after the Civil War. So tonight we're talking about the 1871 Civil Rights Act, but there was an earlier Civil Rights Act, which was the first Civil Rights Act in American history. That was 1866. So the Civil Rights Act of 1866, which they weren't sure, Congress, if they had the authority to do this, because the 14th Amendment hadn't been passed yet. So the Civil Rights Act of 1866 is kind of And general. I believe uh, you wrote in your post, if I may interrupt you, that Andrew Johnson vetoed the first Civil Rights Act. Right, yeah. exactly. So Andrew Johnson was a Democrat. And interestingly, and I sort of blame Lincoln for this, but you understand how it happened. Lincoln wanted to round out his ticket. So he chose Johnson, who was a Democrat, because he thought this would help bring the country together. As it turns out, Johnson was very sympathetic to the South. He didn't want to really put, put pressure on the South. He was more, um, I'll be careful how to describe it, but he was, he was more sympathetic and, and was, he was not interested in retribution. The problem was you had to you could you couldn't play nice with the KKK. These people you can't bargain with them, right? So Johnson was too permissive, and uh, the the point is that Johnson, who was the president after Lincoln is assassinated, vetoes the Civil Rights Act of 1866. And I want to say this is the first time that a law of this importance, uh, you know, the presidential veto was overridden of, of this kind of a law, and it was the first civil rights law of its kind. So what is the Section 1981 of the, of the U.S. Code, 42, Section 42, say? And again, it's a generic promise that civil rights for all persons within the United States it doesn't really have that much in the way of teeth. But it says, and you can see how this evolves, this was the first Civil Rights Act. It says all persons within the United States are granted the same right, meaning slaves, former slaves, are granted the same right, quote, as is enjoyed by white citizens. So it's trying to say black citizens should have the same rights enjoyed by white citizens to make and enforce contracts, to sue, to be sued, 
uh, to be subject to identical punishments. So you can't give harsher punishments to one person than to another because of their hairstyle or the color of their skin or where they come from, etc. So that you know, that you should be subject to the same punishments, the same taxes, and same treatment by the government. So that's the 1866 Act, very generic, and I quote it. I'm not going to read it, so people can come and read it on StatutesAndStories.com. So then you also have in the 1866 Act, and today it's in Section 1982, and you can see how they all line up. So 42 U.S.C. 1982 deals with property rights. So Section 1982 says that all U.S. citizens are given the same property rights as whites, including the right to inherit, to purchase and sell land and other personal property. And again, this came from the Civil Rights Act of 1866, but this law was not enough because the KKK didn't care, right? So now we get to 42 U.S.C. 1983, which is what we talked about, which is deprivations under color of law. So 1983, as we've been saying, is one of the best-known federal statutes, and it is commonly used in suits against state and local government officials. And later, if you have questions, we can give examples of 1983 cases. But it was originally adopted, as we said, as, as part of the Civil Rights Act of 1871, and it allows these private suits for damages against any person who is acting under color of any statute or any, under color of law to deprive a person of rights, privileges, and immunities secured by the Constitution. And the Section 1981, which was from the 1866 Act, because they didn't have the 14th Amendment yet, was based upon the 13th Amendment, 13th Amendment outlaw slavery. That really didn't have enough teeth in it. You needed the 14th Amendment in Section 5 of the 14th Amendment you know, to really uh, try to enforce these laws. And, of course, as we know, it wasn't until the 1960s and the Civil Rights Movement, Martin Luther King, that we really began to enforce fair civil rights. Uh, so, you know, a lot of this were, were laws, some of them were good laws, but it took a while before they actually were, were given their full meaning as originally intended. All right, so we talked about 1983, and again, it's all quoted here in all of its, you know, all of its length and its complexity, so I won't, I won't read it. So we'll go now to Section 1985, 42 U.S.C. 1985, and this is the conspiracy section that I mentioned. So when two or more people conspire to deprive another of equal protection of the law, then they can be liable for suit under 1985, and that's the Trump lawsuit that was brought. And what's interesting is that 1985 does not require state action. So you don't have to have color of law, which is 1983. Does that mean, am I to assume that they go straight to civil rights court? So it can be brought in federal court or in state court. So it's it's equal jurisdiction or uh, coextensive jurisdiction, federal or state court. And uh, the, the, the point is that it's you know, after 1983, you can only sue governmental officials. You can't sue this. And that's maybe more details if we have time. Um, you know, if, if if you generally can't sue the state under 1983, you're suing people individually. So a police officer in their personal capacity, because the police officer isn't, you know, when, when they're beating you up, and I don't like to use police as an example because it's very rare, and I'll, I'll be careful, but, you know, most police officers do their best to follow the law. But for the bad apples that aren't, they're not following the law. They're violating the law. So you're not suing them in their official capacity. You're suing them in their personal capacity. But for 1985, you are allowed to go after private individuals. You do not have to be a governmental official. Right, so 1985, Section 1985, allows suits for those who are interfering, uh, who do not have to be governmental officials. And this is why the lawsuit, which we'll talk about it more another night, is against the Oath Keepers and the Proud Boys, because they're not governmental officials, but they were conspiring to interfere with the exercise of rights. 
So people can read all about 1985, and I, I give all kinds of. Uh, it, it's a very complex, detailed. Is, set of is that the one that you're mentioning? Uh, is uh, the ex-president Trump adjoined to that lawsuit with the Proud Boys, right. or, is, is, or is it only uh, Roger Stone and other individuals like him? So I have not read through all the lawsuits, but I do have a link to one of them. And the one that I'm most familiar with, not that I was involved in drafting it, but I, I did take a look at it, was brought by the – what's the position? He is the chair of the Homeland Security Commission, or the Homeland Security Committee, rather. And I think he's from Mississippi, and his name is Bernie Thompson. So Congressman Bernie – or I should say Chairman Bernie Thompson, chairman of the, of the House Homeland Security Commission uh, or committee – brought is the name plaintiff and the NAACP brought the lawsuit and people can click on the link and it lists the parties. So let me click on that right now and I'll tell you who the parties are. But these are names that you'd recognize and that has to do with the all the being accused of all being accused of insurrection. That's right. And and we'll see what happens with the case. So that's why I'm I'm saying it's gonna be interesting over the next let me scroll back up because I have a link in the post. Let me pull it up. So here's the lawsuit brought by Bernie Thompson. Let me click on the link. So it's Bernie Thompson, the Honorable that, Bernie you know, Thompson, that, and his. If, if Trump capacity. is named, he could be excluded from the 2024 election. Well, if the lawsuit is successful, and that's a whole separate conversation, they're seeking injunctive relief, and the injunctive relief, I'm, I'm pretty sure, isn't to allow, it's not to prevent him from running, right, but to prevent him from interfering with elections. And we can go into more detail another night, but it's Thompson versus Trump versus Giuliani versus Proud Boys versus Oath Keepers. So those are the defendants in this particular lawsuit. Okay, so then he is included. Yep, he is a def- named defendant in this lawsuit filed, let's see if I have the date, February 16th, and it is one count. So it's a 32-page lawsuit. I'm looking at it now, and let's see. And, you know, I like to focus on the history, not to go into modern times, but there is one one count, and that one count is 42 U.S.C. Section 1985, which is the conspiracy section to prevent to force, to, in, to intimidate, to, to threaten, uh, holding of office, trust, or place, and confidence, discharging duties thereof. So you know, that's what 1985 deals with. So that's, you know, my goal tonight is not to get into the weeds of the lawsuit, but rather to give people the background of where this lawsuit is coming from in terms of, of the law dating back to 1871. So that's a little bit of, of the background. So let me give you a little bit more. We have another couple minutes. Let no, me give you, you some more. Full, you have a full five minutes. All right, so let me give you some additional interesting information. So what makes the law sometimes a little frustrating, you know, if you just search for the Ku Klux Klan Act, um, you're not going to find, it's going to be hard to track down the original provisions. And it was recodified at various times when they organized the, the, the people who, who write the statutes and organize the statutes. It's called codification. So it, it's been in different places. And in fact, I think the good word for it is it was scattered. Rather than keeping it in one place, it was put in different provisions of, of the federal statutes. And now, you know, it's only relatively recently that it lines up the way it does. 1983, 1985, 1980, 1988 is the, is the attorney's fees provision. So today it makes more sense because they're all and here's the time frame. In 1874 is when the statutes were revised, and procedurally they were reorganized. So that's why it's hard to track the framework, uh, because it was moved around starting in 1874. You know, we talked about some of the cases uh, where it was, uh, you know, the effect of, of the 14th Amendment was, was chipped away at, starting with the slaughterhouse cases. 
So let me give you some more of the legislative history. When I mentioned the Monroe versus Pape case, I'm, I'm looking now to see it was 13 Chicago police officers who broke into into uh, Pape's house or Monroe's house and and uh, you know arrested him and his wife and uh, kept them naked in the middle of the, of, the, of the bedroom or whatever room it was for several hours. So that was an important case. Pendulum starts swimming back again. And let's see, let's, let's talk about 1983 generally. So if you bring a 1983 action, if you're a plaintiff, you can get compensatory damages, you can get medical expenses, lost income, pain and suffering, emotional distress, reputational injury, and even punitive damages can be awarded not against the state but against individuals in cases involving reckless or callous disregard of a plaintiff's rights and intentional violations of federal law. So that's a case from the 1980s. That's Smith versus Wade. And reasonable attorney's fees, I mentioned, can, can be awarded under Section 1988. So this is an important mechanism to vindicate people's civil rights. You know, abortion protesters, by the way, who are being, uh, you know, denied access, they can bring a civil rights case under 1983. And people trying to get into taking an abortion or do an abortion, they can sue under 1983. So it applies regardless of your politics if you're being denied, uh, you know, your rights under the Constitution. So. If we wanted to talk about 1983, let me give you some of the questions that come up on 1983. So the first of all, the court's going to ask, has there been a violation of a constitutional or statutory right protected? Because if there's no statutory right, then you can't sue under 1983. 1983 by itself isn't a right. It's just the ability to sue to vindicate a right. So the court now, will also uh, ask— Now, are you suing to, re- to restore your right or to get monetary compensation? So been- several, several things. Good question. So 1983 allows— compensatory damages. Under certain circumstances, you can get punitive damages. You can also get injunctive relief to prevent a repetition of what happened or to prevent someone from continuing to do what they were doing. So it's a powerful tool. It's a very important tool today. Um, Unfortunately, this came to me too too long, (laughs) too too late in the game. I was wondering if that original freedom of speech issue that I had back from 2013, I wonder if this law would have applied and why nobody told me. So in my opinion, when people talk about constitutional lawyers, right, what is a constitutional lawyer? So that's someone who's litigating cases, right? If it's elections, that involves the Constitution. But I would say the average lawyer who is suing involving the Constitution is really bringing 1983 cases, you know, to support and to protect constitutional rights. Well, wow, so in my first, case, it was speech and the right to assembly. And, and that what you're telling me, I'm hearing for the first time. I wish I would have known. Right. If, if someone is impairing your rights you know, on this radio station, you talked about you, you guys are big supporters of the Second Amendment, right? Yes. So the Second Amendment, if someone is violating your Second Amendment rights, if it's the law, you try to sue to hold the law unconstitutional. And I don't know if I would agree, by the way, but uh, when it comes to the civil rights, you know, you also have the right to bear arms, Second Amendment. So you would bring a 1983 action if someone is interfering with your Second Amendment rights. That's that's it works for the right. It works for the left. All right. So what does a judge ask? And the answer is, has there been a violation of a statutory protected right? And number two, is the person who is the defendant subject to 1983? In other words, are they using the color of the law to violate your rights? Because 1983 requires state action. So that's the question. Did the person act under color of law? 
or under a local government, now you can sue under a customer practice. It doesn't just have to be a statutory right. It can be a customer practice. And are the actions complained of connected to the deprivation of rights reasonably foreseeable? So you do have to have this idea of what's called proximate causation. If they inadvertently do it, that's a little bit different than if they reasonably should have known that they were going to be depriving someone of rights. And that comes up in the context of prisoner litigation, when prisoners are suing because the food is bad or they're being starved or whatever the case might be. Number five, are there defenses to liability? And this comes up in the complex area of 1983 litigation. There's what's referred to as qualified immunity and the different kinds of immunity, and there are issues of standing uh, and rightness. So th- these are the issues that you deal with and when, you're, when you're litigating. That's why I want to avoid getting into too much of the details. Uh, so qualified and different kinds of immunity. And the last question that I have written down here is, um, is a monetary judgment collectible from a governmental entity, or in the case of an individual defendant, personal assets? Because if you sue someone for violating your rights and you're suing them individually, and it's not a you know, it's not a formal policy of, you know, let's say it's the city. The city you know, did something, or an officer of the city did something to violate your rights, and you've got monetary damages. And if you're suing that official personally, they may not have money to pay you. They may be judgment-proof. Right? So you have to be able to establish that it was an official policy. That way you can go after the government as opposed to just suing the individual who is violating your rights in their individual capacity. So there are you know, monetary conversations that come into play. That would be exactly the case in my case, which is uh, county officials who probably don't have the money to restore my right or uh, I gave me some just confidence. Um, compensation for what they did to me, I would definitely go after the school system. But I was never told any of those things. Oh, well. Well, that's what constitutional litigation is all about, going through what I'm calling a checklist of questions that are involved in 1983 litigation. Let me also throw out a term, a term to you, Bivens actions. Right. So 1983 is applying to states and to localities. But what about if it's a federal official who's violating your constitutional rights? And over time, the, the concept arose, and the name of the case was Bivens, that, uh, yes, you can also sue, which is similar to 1983, against a federal official, and that's referred to as a Bivens action, which recognizes an implied cause of action when you're suing under the authority of the Constitution in the absence of a statute, and there are limitations on Bivens actions, but that's if anyone has heard the concept of a Bivens action, you're suing a federal official, not a state official or local official, which would be under 1983. And if we just have another moment or so... Yeah, your closing argument is... Okay, the closing argument, and I'm not sure that I have a closing argument, but... Uh, well, you see. better. We it's have... 7.04. You better close right, well, let's it. Let's go back to Grant. So Grant is an example of an overlooked president, but I think if they make another Grant movie, people will begin to reappreciate him. But it's an example of a president who was forceful, who was decisive. He gave warnings to the South. If you don't clean up your game, I'm coming in after you. And he, he followed through. So I think Grant deserves a lot of credit for doing what he could, not just to win the Civil War, but to claim the victory. And it would take another 100 years on the Civil Rights Movement to be able to really protect the rights of African Americans uh, who really suffered uh, prior to the Civil War and until after uh, Martin Luther King was able to convince us to to follow through on Lincoln and Grant's legacy. So remember what Donald Trump said at the end of his speech, we're the party of love. Ulysses Grant is now joining our party of love here on WSQF Blink Radio with Adam Levinson, Statues and Stories Hour. Thank you, Adam. 
Thanks, everybody. Have a great night.